Welcome to this week's episode of the Bet on Yourself podcast, where we speak to some of the world's most inspirational people who have all, at some point in their careers, taken a huge bet on themselves, transforming them personally and professionally. Today, I'm joined by Rick Pastor, the author of Grip. It's a flexible collection of tools and insights that was born during his time at Blendle, the New York Times-backed journalism startup, to help his team be as effective and efficient as possible. Self-published in Dutch in 2019, Grip became an overnight bestseller in the Netherlands. Rick's mission today is the same, to help people make smarter decisions about their time. Now he divides his own time between his young family in Amsterdam, giving talks on grip, his weekly newsletter titled Work in Progress, and a new startup where he's building a next generation calendar called Rise. I can't wait to share Rick's story with you all today. And if you love this episode as much as I think you will, then please do let me know in all the usual places. Rick Pastor, thank you so much for joining us on the Bet on Yourself podcast today. Thanks, Anne, for having me. I am very much looking forward to this conversation uh, for many reasons. One, I think you represent such an interesting path in entrepreneurism, one that really resonates with me given my background in Silicon Valley. Um, and we're also going to dive into the topics of your book, which are top of mind for me for reasons that we'll get into later. But I wonder, before we dive into all those nice details, I'd like to start at the very beginning on this podcast and ask you, what did you want to be when you were a little kid? What did young Rick think he was going to be when he grew up? Ha. So um, I think one of the earliest uh, memories that I have on, on work is that I wanted to, um, of course, the obvious ones, like, the, like a fireman. Uh -huh. um and like the and, and I, I had a phase where i wanted to be a pilot where i actually applied um for the usual like the how, how you how you become a pilot in, in in a sense but i quickly found out that um um that actually i was i was very much drawn to um programming and computers and at a very young age my um my dad put me behind the first computer that we had in our house and one of the things that he did then was uh, he basically told me, um, okay, you can you can type numbers. So this was before the normal user interface, right? So n not any dragging and not not, not, without a mouse, not with a mouse and stuff like that. So just the typing. And he basically said, okay, you can you can type stuff here. So I was wondering how far the 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 numeric system would go. So I would type like one, two, three, and then and so so on. And when I was um, uh, and he, and he would say when I when I when I got to bed, he would say like, hey. Rick, um, I can um, I can help you along a little bit. So I will I will spend my evening typing, and then in the morning you will be you, know, you can you can see the screen and see how far I got, and then you can pick pick it up from there. And um, so in the morning I would I would look at the screen, and then it would be a, a, like a, a huge number, like in the hundreds of thousands or, or something <laughs> something like that. And and of course I was I was very impressed by by his progress of him typing all night, but but of course later on. Uh, a couple of years later, he would explain to me that he would actually use some kind of macro, some <laughs> kind of function to, to do that. And um, uh, so the first part where I was where I was really young, and then seeing the um, the power of such a device where you can basically make something show up on your screen without do like you you don't have to you have to only have to imagine what what can be done and that can be on the screen. And then later on, finding out that using macros or using some kind of functions. Um, you can do these kind of things in a split second. Um, both were, uh, I think, instrumental. Like he, he uh, sometimes uh, 
complained later later on when I was, I think, 12 or 14, that he, he put me behind the screen and get, got me hooked um, uh, a little bit too soon uh, because, of course, <laughs> later on I had to do some schoolwork and stuff like that. But that was the first, uh, my first steps into discovering what I wanted to be. And then um, uh, I've been hooked ever since uh, to this device and, and the ability that, that it gives you. I love that. That really reminds me of my entry into tech because I started um, in 2002. So a lot of us were kind of, I'm not a coder myself, but so many of my colleagues came into it that way of just kind of coding, watching the results, learning from that, like not any kind of formal university, like master's in computer science from Stanford. That was not the original like colleagues that I had, it was very much kind of figuring things out as as you go. Um, yeah. So I really, really resonate with those kind of early years uh, of coding and kind of hacking your way into it. Um, but before we get into your formal career, I actually heard a really fun story about you that your entrepreneurial journey started much earlier than your formal uh, startup years. Can you tell me the yeah. story about this comic book production you had when you were in primary school? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I think that was um, that was my first experience of um, wanting to create something physical, right? So the screen is nice, and I was actually building my first couple of websites then in in primary school, uh, the, the the final years of it. But um, there was something happening with uh, some kind of a figure um, that you got with um, with a piece of candy uh, in the Netherlands, and um, as a group, there was this guy that that uh, I'm still friends with, and he's um, he's a really good. Um, uh, he can he can draw really good. Like he can he can he can really make some make something uh, up from from scratch. I'm not a really good uh, drawer or artist myself, but we took that and we started to um, create some stories around it. And then um, basically, I said, okay, let's let's create a, a comic out of this, a monthly thing that we get printed and then um, distribute among our friends. And of course, uh, well, that, that costs a, a bit of money to create. So uh, I started charging actually for it. <laughs> uh, and we, I think we got around 20 or 30 official subscribers. Um, and, um, and I found out that I, I, I get a lot of fun out of thinking about what, what, what such a product can be, but also the fact you have to arrange it, like something like that does not just fall out of thin air. Uh, every month we would have to think about, okay, uh, what will the layout of the thing will be and how many pages of X and, and Y and Z. And I would, I would call up those guys and say, I really need it now. This was in like grade seven. So uh, <laughs> it's actually a bit, a bit weird. Um, uh, but, but on the other hand, one of the teachers already um, showed me like, hey, one, you, you cannot do everything yourself. So if you are with a team, you have to divide and you also have to uh, let go of some of the parts where, well, uh, that you maybe don't like because there's not enough time to, to get it all done. So that was actually my first experience of uh, doing something with a team that you deliver to some other people. Um, they exchange it for a little bit of money and, and they will uh, have an opinion about it. Uh, sometimes good, sometimes they have something to complain, um, which is a strong driver of, of reinventing actually as a, as a company. And of course it was only child's play, but it was a, a really nice, uh, a first, uh, first venture actually. Yeah. I love that. Uh, cause I, I never, I didn't self-identify as an entrepreneur until much later in my life than you did. 
But looking back, just hearing your story of this comic book production and getting kind of a co-founder and getting an advisor in your teacher, I just, it's obviously the template for, for formal like startups. And thinking back, as just as you were sharing that, I was remembering when my sisters and I, I'm the oldest of seven kids. I have four sisters and two brothers. Oh, wow. It's crazy. I, I <laughs> love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's very fun. But I, um, we used to put on productions, my sisters and I, and um, we had neighbor girls who lived across the street from us, a girl my age, and then twins who were the same age as my sister, just younger than me. And we would put on productions of musicals and do the whole thing, the playbook, sell tickets, do advertising, going around the neighborhood, getting people to come to our production, literally in my parents' garage. I had never yet, literally ever until this moment, realized like that was my first startup, this production company. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> no, but that's, that's, that, that's really cool. And I think one there's, there's multiple parts to this, but one is that I was very lucky to have parents that... Um, uh, actually uh, encourage me like they they would they would not say like okay play outside or well they would yeah. also say that but also sure. <laughs> they would allow me and also like m my dad took all of the 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 comic stuff to his work to make copies oh um, i love it the, the illegal <laughs> illegal copies on the on the work <laughs> the workplace uh, copy machine <laughs> bring it back home and then my my mom would help me stencil the stuff together and i believe like i'm i'm a father now and i believe these kind of things are quite instrumental in, in if you feel as a kid to have the, the, the space and the, the opportunity to just try out this stuff and also do silly things. But this, like charging money, this is stuff that I came up with myself. And then my parents would say something like, hey, you have some this money. What, what's, what's the goal of, ha of getting this money? And then we as a group decided that half of the money would give away to a charity. Um, uh, just because the, my parents would ask like, hey, um, okay, now you have this money. What do you have this for? And I think, um, so one part is that I was incredibly and still am incredibly lucky by having uh, such like uh, living in a, in, a, in a time where I could just spend my, my hours doing that. But also they enabled it uh, a, a lot as well. So it's not just my, my in instinct or my talent. It's also my parents just being, being like being there and saying, hey, go ahead and try this stuff. Yeah, sure. I will help. Absolutely. I think one of the greatest privileges of my life as well was to be in a home environment where it was safe to experiment and learn things and be supported. In fact, thinking about it, I think it was my dad that suggested premium tickets to our theater productions oh, where you could also good. have, good. you could also have snacks. Exactly. So I, he, he <laughs> was, yeah, just them asking those questions, getting you thinking about like the possibilities and different ways you can approach it is a great privilege. I know that not all kids have um, home environments where their parents can be involved in that way, but exactly. Exactly. But I'm very grateful that I too had those nice early memories and experiences. So formally, so this is your early start into entrepreneurism, but you actually started your first official venture when you were just 19. Can you tell us about that first company? You were there for six years before your exit. What was that first journey like for you as an entrepreneur? Did you study, I guess I should pause, did you study formally programming in school before you started this company? Okay, tell us about that education and then how that led into starting your venture. Yeah, so I, I, I very early on um, when I was in high school decided that I wanted to um, study like to study computer science and there was a like there was a no-brainer I never even doubted I was like this was the one thing that I visited um, I, I had like my eyes were set were set on on that and then as soon as I uh, did that I um, I 
at some point I got a question from, um, from a guy from the internet that I met. He was like, Hey, can you build my, can you build this website for me? This was in the time where we all uh, were going into the website building stuff. And, and I was like, okay, sure. I don't know exactly how to do this, but I can, I can, I think I can do that for, I don't know, what was it? 600 euros or something like that. So that's a small amount, um, for me back then was a, as a whole lot of money. Um, so I, I did that in the evenings and then at some point, um, I started working together with, uh, with a guy in my class, um, who ultimately I founded this company with as a co-founder. And then I, we got questions from the people that hired us and they said like, you need to get your tax stuff arranged because we can no longer hire you guys without having that sorted. So that was actually the reason we got incorporated. Um, and then we did all of that. Um, at, like we were, we, we would go to the, to the campus to go to the, to the, to the classes. And then as soon as the class was done, we would sit somewhere at the table and then work on the assignments that we got actually paid for. Uh, so we did that at school. Um, and then, um, so that was the, f the founding of the company. And then three years later, we were both, um, uh, we both had our, our, had our degree. And then we thought like, Hey, what are we going to do? Are we going to pursue this or are we going to, um, stop doing this and, 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 um, and get a real job. Right. <laughs> and then we, we thought like, but this, this is actually, um, we had a couple of years where we were still living at home. Uh, so we got all our expenses paid for. It's a really nice and it's a really safe way to start a company, right? If, right. if your expenses are really low. So we thought this was the, this is possibly the easiest, um, ever way to get into uh, doing something for ourselves. And let's see what happens if we do this for a couple of years full time. So we did that for three years then after. So three years within and three years after, about six years in total. Um, and and we had, a, we had a lot of fun, uh, but also we learned so much because, and what my biggest lesson is that, of course, you don't get paid if the, if the stuff is not done and if it's not done well. And um, that, that might seem as a very obvious thing for people that are entrepreneurs. Um, but I see this going wrong with a lot of young people that uh, have their first job in a startup where there is no limitations on this. There's also, it's also hard to, um, to see the real, like sometimes it's hard to see the impact of your work, but also there's no, there's no one saying, okay, well, this is, this is okay, but I, I won't pay you because it's not good enough, right? Because in a startup, you just get paid, you just get paid every month. There's a lot of money. Uh, and, and I think for me, that experience really shaped me in terms of like, um, I had to make sure that the stuff was right, done on time, according to a schedule. I could not just make any like um, appointment with a client and then not, uh, like not get back to it. Uh, what do you do if, if you get delayed? What do you do if requirements change? What do you do if circumstances change? If you get sick or whatever, like you, you get across all of this stuff, you need to deal with that. And, and I quickly find out that the more proactive you are, the easier this all gets, right? So that was a big, a big learning experience for me and also a lot of fun. Ultimately, um, I also found that I wanted to do way more of my own because as a, as, as an agency, you're just building what other clients are requesting. And I found that a lot of times we would say, my co-founder and me would say to each other like, hey, okay, this is never going to work, right? So we are going to spend the next six months building this product that we already know um, is not going to work, right? It's not, gonna t not going to take off. Uh, we get paid 
nicely and well we can live but are we really want to like do we really want to spend our our most valuable a- asset our time on something that's not going to fly well ultimately i decided that that i don't i didn't want to do that so that's when i switched to uh, and ultimately joined uh, blendle as a startup I see, now I understand, having read the sneak peek of your book, I can see the foundation of everything that you're now sharing with a broader audience. We're going to come back to that. But the little light bulbs are going off for me of these nuggets of wisdom that you learned in that first venture of being proactive, of thinking about passion alignment in the work you're doing. What is your mark? Realizing that your time is your most valuable asset, so focusing on efficiency without burning yourself out. A lot to unpack there, which we will. But tell me about Blendle. So Blendle must have been a crazy adventure. It was incredibly successful. Um, let's see. It was backed by the New York Times and Ac- Axel Springer, if I'm right. And it was lauded internationally for coming up with new business models for journalism, which I just found find fascinating because this is such a hot topic right now of the importance of journalism in modern democracy. So tell us about that. How did you decide to leave your company, join Blendle? And then what was your pathway and your growth path like there at Blendle? Yeah. So so how I, how I got there is also interesting because um, ultimately a, f- a friend introduced me to, uh, to the guys at Blendle. And he was saying, Rick, you, I think you should really talk to these guys. They're building something around the news, around the newspaper business. And I was like, newspaper? I never read a newspaper. No. <laughs> Why should I be interested in a newspaper business? I just read my news online or I'm not really interested in news. Like I read uh, something about games, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was like, okay, but he's the girl, but you should, you should talk to them because... Um, they're really passionate, but also the technology is really interesting because, well, that's the, the back end side of things for such a company is that you have a ton of content coming their way that has to be processed and then formatted in the right way. And you, and you want, to, want to output that in a way that's really nice for the, for the reader, for the, for the viewer. Um, so I said, okay, uh, sure, I will, I will talk to them. Uh, and then I met a couple of really passionate founders, but the guy that introduced me was one of the friends that I met at the, at my at my studies at the school that I, that I previously described, and um, uh, he was super well connected uh, already back like when when I first met him, and we stayed in we stayed in touch, and that really taught me also, and and still we we chat um, uh, quite often. He um, it, it really showed me the value of um, investing in. In, in these kind of relationships because um, you will never know where this next like like next big step will, will come from. Um, so and true. The best referrals for, for, for new jobs and new opportunities come from your from that circle. But there is no way that circle is going to invent itself, right? So you have to think about that and invest in that. So that's uh, one of the one of my insights. Um, um, back then with this guy. I think that's so important for our listeners to take note of, especially those who are in the earlier stages of their careers. Sometimes people hear like networking, like all the opportunities are who you know, and they think that looks like some formal event where everyone's standing around awkwardly with a drink trying to like talk to people they don't know. That's never been where my big breaks have come from. It's always about that reputation that precedes you, where an opportunity comes up, where someone's doing something interesting related to an expertise or a reputation that you have, and then people think of you and proactively come to you with those opportunities. That is what networking actually looks like. Same for me. I haven't interviewed for a job since 2002, 
because it just naturally, you know, people think of you in the right moment for different projects and ditto, I try and pay that forward to other people. Uh, so I think that is a universal truth overall. Think about your long-term reputation and really investing in those relationships, especially in the early and middle part of your career. Yeah, I hundred percent agree, but but it's also hard to like, especially young people. Like, okay, yeah. what does invest in relationships Good point. mean? Like, it's such a, it's such a, <laughs> like, it's a, it's, it's, it's vague. A, it's a big message and 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 vague. It's also one of the parts that I described later on in the book. It's about mm -hmm. how do you um, how do you have meaningful conversations with people yes. that you don't really know. And for me, this always starts with just being genuinely interested in what someone else is doing asking questions and that's what i find that especially young people that start off with find it scary because it shows that you're not knowing that, that you that you don't know everything and but that's a that's a that's a super nice signal for someone else to to see if if someone is truly interested and, and genuinely wants to know why you're doing some doing something that's laying the foundation of getting to know each other and signaling that you're serious so if, if you would say, okay, start building relationships, I would say start asking more questions because oh. that's a simple thing yeah. that's that's something that you can explain to a two-year-old mm -hmm. uh, or a three-year-old in my case. Well, it's hard to explain something to a two-year-old, <laughs> but like uh, I, could, I, could, I could try it with her. Um, but, but, but that's something that that's, uh, I find that resonates with young people as well. Like, oh, I can just, oh, I can just ask questions and then, oh, okay, this, that doesn't mean that I'm stupid. No, of course not. That's like... like um, that puts you in the in the in in the in the perfect position to learn new stuff, but also work on your relationship. I am so glad that you unpacked that. I think that's such good advice. I have seen that one of the questions I get asked all the time is, "What are the common denominators among these highly effective CEOs that I've worked for in early tech at Google, at Amazon, etc." And one of the top qualities I say is insatiable curiosity. Uh, I've seen them model that behavior where they are often the smartest person in the room and they know to go to the junior most person in the room because they've got a unique perspective. And so I've seen that modeled the other way as well. And um, watching my CEO bosses do that gave me permission to also ask questions. And you're right, it can feel very vulnerable in the beginning because it can highlight something you don't understand. Uh, but that is where, listen, people love talking about themselves and showing off their expertise. It's never backfired on me to switch the conversation into being genuinely, authentically interested in learning something from another person whose expertise are different than mine. Um, so I think that's really important advice. There's always more to learn from the other party than, than what you already know, right? So yes. Can, and I, and that, that's what makes these, these conversations for me also always a little bit awkward because I'm not really like, uh, I, can, I can talk, but I'm actually way more interested in the other perspective right. uh, that's not why i'm here so no. I, I won't do that uh, <laughs> uh but um uh, but but i think that's a key that's a key thing um uh, one thing that i wanted um uh, to add is like on i think the the one of the founders of blendel uh or both actually were uh, journalists they now moved on to other stuff but were journalists and i think as ceos also being journalists so they are like used to not like not stop after the first question which is the second layer of this like if i'm interested i can ask hey um, so how did you do uh, x y and z and then you give me an answer that first answer won't be the answer that's the real answer right that's uh, the the that's the answer you give to to feel like is this person really interested or do they really have the time or not like is this is a superficial question but if you there's always a follow-up question you can ask 
Uh, and if you do that, that's when you really tap into the into the to the real wisdom, the real like the emotions behind it, the stuff that really drove the decision. So, uh, so that's one part. The other part that I wanted to add is, I think it's really hard for young people now that have to do their studies at home so much uh, that are not in a physical, physically same location. If you start off, like I think that's a real that's a real problem that we're facing. That if you are joining a workforce now, it's a lot harder to build these relationships because when I was at when I was at this uh, uh, at this uh, this school and um, and find, finding my my uh, my my co-founder and also building these friends, these were in other teams. I was the one guy that was actually like walking around all the time and then disturbing other people <laughs> and then basically trying to wedge myself into this this team that I find found really really strong. Uh, but I cannot do that if I'm at home and I'm connected via Zoom. So I'm, I, I don't have a solution for this because yeah. this this is just really sad. This is just really like some something that I think that 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 a long, lot of young people miss out on. And I hope in the next year, uh, most of this stuff will go yes. away again. Yes. Um, but meet in person and then show up um, and make use of the time uh, outside of class to be visible. Uh, and then ask questions mm. and then be involved and then stuff like like that. If you're, um, well, if you're not the young part of the audience, then this is not for you. But this is the <laughs> stuff that really helped me uh, at that at that point in time. Me too. I think that's so important whether you're like my youngest sister is in a master's program right now. And a master's degree graduate school is all about learning to ask the right questions. And so I do. I, I, it is such a shame. I, hopefully the second half of her master's will be much more of this interaction. But yeah, if you're in uh, the early stages of your first job, or even if you're trying to reinvent yourself, perhaps you've done a career pivot, now is a great opportunity to be asking questions. And that's how you build up natural mentorships and sponsors and get people who can open doors for you that you can't yet open yourself, is when they get to know you and the meaning behind some of the efforts you're trying to do. We are naturally segueing into where I was hoping to go, which is a blend of this formal experience you've had and the theoretical of how you've broken down some of the best practices that made you really effective in this ambiguous, you know, challenging entrepreneurial environment. And that has come out through your book, Grip, which I think is incredible. Um, I'm not quite finished with it yet, but nearly there. And I can see immediately why it became a Dutch bestseller. I mean, you almost immediately sold 35,000 copies of this. And now you're launching your book, internationally. Please tell me first, um, people ask me this about my book all the time, which is hard to distill, but why did you write it? And what was the audience for that you had in mind originally? And I'm curious how that might be pivoting now as you're thinking about a broader international audience. Like who is this book for? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and and uh, uh, the short answer is I wrote it as an internal guide initially for Blendle. Uh, because we had, as I, as I mentioned, young people, like they enter the workforce, they are very excited. They are super skilled. They have a lot of knowledge, but also they don't, they have a lot of things that I, they don't know. And uh, I had read getting things done in the, the venture before that. I read the seven habits when it was part of their curriculum at school. Um, and, and uh, I was generally like, th th that was a, my first experience with these, with the self-help genre. And I was, I was immediately pulled, pulled towards it because I thought like, this is amazing. Like you have a ton of learnings from someone, uh, really applicable, uh, in, uh, in a compact form that I can, I can consume. But I also immediately noticed that a lot of people are, um, not really attracted to it. And 
they feel I pu pushed into a corner or they have to adopt a certain way of working or they have to read to like hundreds of pages of personal stories of how successful the author um, was with this and then stuff like that, which is, which is great and can be motivating for some people, but for a lot of people, it was not. And when I was uh, at Blendle, people would ask me like, Hey, um, Rick, you, you don't seem uh, very stressed, but you, I think you have a lot on your, on your plate. How do you do this? And I would say, Oh, well, okay. I have uh, this stack of books, uh, start here. I have this list of podcasts. You should listen to them all. Maybe a training. Oh, maybe you also like, uh, maybe also like, um, um, uh, go to, through some, uh, some video online video stuff. Right. And they would say like, uh, I'll, I'm going to stop you here uh, <laughs> because I'm already up until here in the work. And you're giving so, me homework. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you give me homework. So yeah. <laughs> please give me three bullets of things that yeah. I can do today that help me out of this mess because the advice that people get a lot is like, yeah, but you, th you should think about your long-term perspective. How are you going to do this if you are stressed out, if you are maybe feeling like you're running towards a burnout, if you have a family to manage, if you have bills that you're worrying, like th there's no way you can get to that. So that's when I thought, okay, let me just um, write a really quick summary of the best items that I've learned and experimented with, and then I will pass that on. So I did that, and I also started writing more at, uh, on my uh, newsletter, starting sharing the stuff online. And that's when I found that especially the time management stuff really resonated, and especially the part about how I would um, apply my calendar. There's nothing really new. There's there's nothing really like that you see and think, okay, this is no one on planet Earth has ever thought about this. No, but it's like brought together in a form that um, is just giving you something that you can apply from page one uh, starting today. And I think that was what I personally saw that was lacking, um, that I uh, found really useful to pass on in my team. And then someone said like, hey, you should self-publish this in the Netherlands. You are uh, not just an author, but you like to do this kind of stuff all yourself. You're, you like to micromanage this kind of thing. So yeah, I was like, yeah, this, that uh, sounds like me. So I did that. And then from one thing came something else and then the book um, ultimately launched. Um, and it's basically since then, I initially thought it's only for young people, but I also have people that email me that are on my mailing list that say like, yeah, I'm, I'm 76, but I still need some of these principles. I have such a busy life. Like I, I'm, I'm, I don't have work, but there are so many people that want stuff from me. How do I get to my own priorities? Well, I, I use the tools. I'm, like I'm 76. I'm like, okay, uh, apparently that still works. So I, I get feedback from, um, from people from all over the different sectors, different kind of jobs. Um, we all have to manage our time. We all have to do that. We all have stuff that's coming our way and we all have our own priorities. And the question is, how do you, um, how do you manage that? Uh, and I think, uh, the guide, um, is one of the ways to do that, uh, that, uh, that people um, apparently love. So that's what happens. I can see that re very clearly why this would resonate because it's so true. There's so many books, so many podcasts, all the lessons to learn um, and having something that's distilled it down just to the heart of it, where to get started, what to try and see what works for you. I love the subtitle of your book. This is immediately got me to flip to the first page. And so it's grip, but it's called the art of working smart and getting what you want. I love that's very, very motivating. And in the introduction, you have a really fun quote, which I highlighted immediately where you said, 
I'm not going to tell you to do less. I'll leave that to your friends and family. (laughs) What I will tell you to do and challenge you to make smarter choices, to rethink how you go about your work, to take things up a notch at strategic moments, and to choose what not to do, to set your own course. Because if you don't take the lead, someone else will choose for you. I love this example of the 76-year-old who is learning new best practices. I wonder, are there some stories from either readers of your newsletter or early readers of in the first launch that really stand out to you as somebody that's encapsulated all of this wisdom that you're imparting? Because I just find those um, case studies so motivating. Yeah, yeah. So, so okay. Um, uh, well, we don't have all day, so I, I, I can I can pull up some some but some uh, some good stories. Um, one that really touched me was someone that is helping um, young people that have some kind of an autism, um, uh, some, some kind of a, uh, an issue with with in that in that area. So, with various degrees, and she was describing to me that they use part of the method because they they are like they're so structured that there is no um room for a negotiation uh right and that's what gives those kids a lot of perspective and the feeling of being in, in control and when i read that from her i was like we all need that right uh and and and, and i think we we assume and we think that we thrive when we have a lot of options um, while that's actually stre- like some, sometimes you want to explore all the options, but actually I'm arguing that most of the week you should not re- renegotiate right. every single decision all of the time. No. And that's what we are doing. Decision right? so, fatigue is real. Yes. So you're done with, with task, task A and then you're like, should I really do task B? Mm-hmm. Is that really something that I want? Do I feel right about that? I don't like. I don't have the energy right now. I'm. All, I will push this forward. And I'm actually one of the things that I describe in the first chapter on on the calendar is like this calendar brings together two really like you will get. Of course, we will dive in maybe in a bit, a bit, a bit deeper. I love this part of it, the book. I highlighted a yeah, lot in the calendar section. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And I think it's still. It like I live. I live by this because it brings together two components that are crucial. One is what you want to do, and two is when you're going to do it like this is a commitment a time commitment and this is lacking in so many tools so you have an endless to-do list which is which is a never-ending thing and well no decision on when you're going to do it right so i'm pulling this back to the quote from the from from the the woman who was working with this with these kids um i still feel that we are all like in 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 really in need of a structure that um uh, has less room for a little to no room for negotiation all of the time because that's so tiring. I couldn't agree more. And one of the things that I highlighted is the other side of that coin in this section about calendar. So you're talking about stop the decision fatigue, kind of make the decision once and then continue your plan. Trust yourself that when you put together that plan, that was the right prioritization. And um, I, I think that's so important when to avoid this decision fatigue. But the other thing I highlighted in the calendar section was what I wrote in the margin pro tip was when you said, if possible, leave about 20% of your working hours open. I say this to my consulting clients until I'm blue in the face and they kind of freak out when they do it because as you said, the to-do list is endless. And then once they finally get brave and leave that space, 
suddenly those light bulb moments happen. They have that moment of inspiration, of connection, or as you were describing in earlier in our conversation, how innovation happens between the verticals. When you get up and have a conversation with someone on a different team or you're just having these water cooler moments that we're all missing right now, you have to leave time for serendipity, for inspiration, and for innovation. And so I was so glad to see that in your incredible practical tips of how to get a lot done. You're like, I'm not talking about packing every single hour of every moment of every day with this. That's actually really inefficient. will burn you out. If possible, leave 20% of your working hours open. Yeah. So I, my, my question would be, um, I'm always super interested in what kind of tips you give because um, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure those clients will say, okay, well, how do I, how oh. do, I do this? Because 20%, that's a lot of it time. It is a lot. A day. It is a what lot. Do you actually suggest? What do you suggest? So I actually really believe in 20% as a rule. I steal that from my 12 years at Google because it's literally, it's now a famous practice that engineers at Google receive what they it's literally called 20% time. So that means engineers at Google can spend 20% of their time working on anything they want, not requiring manager approval and using company resources. You can use the servers, laptops, equipment, anything at your disposal to work on cool stuff. So many of the um, Google products that are heavily used in part of our daily habits today came out of these 20% projects. So I've seen the wisdom in creating space where you can just make cool stuff. You don't have to defend it. You can just fiddle with it. And I've actually seen a lot of wisdom in the way that different engineers used their 20% time. Some of them would save a couple hours a day to work on their passion projects. And some would be like, Fridays is my 20% day. That's one day a week, which can feel luxurious. That's not the word I'm looking for. Um, It can feel indulgent is the word I'm looking for to protect an hour of your day. So I now, Fridays are my inspiration day. I will go out, I will go on a hike, or I'll go to a gallery, or I'll go somewhere new that just has no um, immediate return on investment. It's just about opening my mind to new stimulus and new things. So when I finally talk my clients into trying this out, every single one of them, once they do the hard work of clearing the space and prioritization and delegating stuff off to create space, the day they finally do it, they call me in a complete panic. Well, that's not, that sounds like a like a really solid process. And I think um, especially if you think about the outcome of having 20% for yourself for basically to do anything, that's uh, that's huge. Like that's, that's a nice carrot to, to work towards. Absolutely. What I also seen is that if you want to have 20%, um, like this 20% for yourself, you also have to have a plan for the other 80%. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and I think that's where... That's the, the flip side, right? So people will say, okay, I, I want I want some time for myself to do like to do certain things, also also in a team. And um, I think that's why I organized a book um, around individuals and not teams, because I feel that the tools are for individuals, like like an individual contributor, individual worker, you as an employee, um, you really need the tools to help you uh, fill up this 80% in such a way that you could actually have this 20%, right? So um, this, and and then um, while I, I really like the process of going through your values and mission and, and stuff first, I also know that a lot of people find that, um, as actually when I, what, I, what, I, what I said just a moment ago, if you are up until here, like up until the neck in, in the work, um, that's really hard to do. So then I would, I would actually say to people like, okay, um, put everything that you feel responsible for in your calendar. Uh, and then they would come screaming back to me. <laughs> it like, doesn't okay, fit. But, uh, 
it doesn't fit. So Rick, do you have a tip for me to make it all fit? And I would say, no, nope. this is exactly what you, why you are doing this exercise, because now you know that you're overbooked. You have way too much on your plate. So um, figure out a way uh, to make it fit without making the individual blocks shorter. Well, there's only one way to do that. You have to, you have to make some decisions and they would say, okay, that's tough but I will go to my manager, A, B, and C, yeah, I cannot make it. Or they would go to the manager and show what they have on their plate and then have them say, do you want me to work three nights and a weekend to get it all done? Or should we start making some decision? And any responsible manager would say, okay, yes, yeah, sure, we can scrap. Like this can, this can be done next week, this can be done next week, this can be done next week, and now it fits. And that's the starting point of having actually uh, a place to start thinking about having this 20%. But first, you need to have your, your week in order and, and, and reclaim your evenings and your weekends for yourself to decompress. Uh, and, and, and that's um, uh, so that's where I often uh, start. And, and that's also the feedback that I got a lot. Like, okay, this, this will never, ever fit. And then it, it, all the times it, it, it does. Because if you start making a list and if you start thinking on like, okay, what are my three bullets prioritizations? Like, it's just three bullets. What do I really want to or need to get done this week? It will always, like, there's always a way to get started or make progress on these. Everything else can go. Uh, and as long as you communicate proactively about it, this is what I, what I learned when I'm running the agency, most people will be fine. But no manager, no manager is going to ask, can we, uh, I, like, here is this extra assignment. Can you get this done? next thursday no of course they will not they will leave out the date parts they will just say can you get this done we assume that they mean right now today this week very often that's not the case but we don't ask right so we just assume we try to fit it in we work an extra evening an extra weekend what for right if you only ask hey you uh, okay for when uh well next week is fine there is no pressure, no stress, but that needs what well, we need to have this this check and check and balances of how we how we decide on These, how we spend our time. There's so much to unpack in here. In fact, I was on a webinar just last night where they asked me if you could go back and tell 18 year old Anne one piece of advice. What would you tell her? Basically, this is it. I didn't learn until. 15, 17 years into my career that I could do that conversation you just described. So I, I also have translated my to-do list into time blocks on my calendar. I started doing that a long time ago, save my sanity. Like just today, I got interrupted by something unexpected. Today, I was supposed to do invoicing for the first quarter of the year. Okay. I had to move that block um, on my calendar. Yes. I always, never the first thing on my <laughs> favorite project <laughs> list. But I, I yeah. moved it because, and but otherwise it would just be like, oh no, you know, six months have gone by and I haven't sent those invoices. So it, when you have it as a block and something interrupts it, you really physically have to move it. And then I finally, so back when I was still at Google and I was working for Eric Schmidt as chief of staff and things, you know, the internet never sleeps and there are these fires, there are war rooms that things that reprioritize your to-do list. It finally occurred to me in the last couple of years I worked for him when those moments happened to just highlight for him how I was reprioritizing my head. Okay, I hear that that's really urgent and important. So that means I'm shifting X, Y, and Z to tomorrow and I'm delegating this to her and this to him. And just saying that out loud saved my sanity so many times. I wish I had done that earlier in my career, especially when you're younger, because you're not sure if you are prioritizing. You think, yes, I do have to stay up until 3 a.m. and do this, when really if you'd taken that 15 seconds to say, here's what I'm hearing, is that correct? 
they would have been told you that like, no, 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 that can wait for next Monday or something. Exactly. That's cool. No, no, hundred percent. And, but I think, I, I do think the calendar is crucial because if you don't have that, if you're not putting the work in the calendar, because that's the, that's the advice from the first chapter, right? Use your calendar for everything, not just meetings, but also preparation time, processing time, travel time, and also for work. So what you do, what your biggest priorities are should be on the calendar. You call it your rock, gives, right? Yes, it's a rock. It's a, it's like, it's a, it's my, it's my, it's my sanctuary place. I'm, I won't touch it. Like if it's there, I will do it. Like there is no, like there's no negotiation. Of course these happen, but this is a starting point. Um, but this gives you a, a, like an upfront view of how things are going. And, and most of, most of the people that I meet have only have a, like a, a after the after the, the crime the crime has happened, they will look back and see, okay, this was a train wreck. While I can predict on Monday, okay, this will be a tough week, and now I can start making some proactive changes. Like I can make sure, okay, maybe I should clear out one evening to work, which is fine as long as everyone is in the loop. I know that my wife is at home, and we get stuff arranged, whatever. Like, and then it feels not stressed, but it feels managed. And of course, we cannot manage every single thing in our life and on the uh, on our lives and on this on this planet. Um, luckily, we don't. But these kind of things we can do. Um, but then it gives you this overview that you can take to your manager, and that's the the essential part that I find was often lacking when I was a manager, um, and I'm a manager again. But like uh, when I was at Blendel, uh, people would come to me and say, "Rick, I'm I'm way too busy." I would say, "With what?" Um, what are you doing? And not in this aggressive tone, but I would say, okay, show me, what are you doing? They would show me a list. And I would say, based on this list, I cannot really, like, I cannot make an estimation if that's actually full or not. So show me your calendar. And they would say, yeah, there's three meetings. Okay. But how are you like, uh, is this one, is this task one day, one and a half, like two days. And then this is basic stuff for us, but like for young people, this would this would really force them to put it in their calendars and think, okay, I need a full day for this. If I need a full day, I can only do one extra task and I have three on my plate. So now what, now what do I do? Well, you don't have to manage it yourself. That's a question you can take to your manager. But now you have a view, you have an overview, an estimation, stuff you can, can discuss, um, which I find super nice and so freeing. You're so right that it's just a very different energy exchange because then you feel in control. You feel like you're in the driver's seat. A lot of times, especially early in your career, it feels like, well, I don't have any choice. My manager said so, or this just has to get done. Or um, even now, you know, as an entrepreneur, it just feels like a lot of things are outside of our control right now in this very quickly evolving space of pandemic, hopefully soon to be post-pandemic. Um, this is how you get that sense of control back um, and and really reprioritizing. In fact, um, one of the things I uh, – another thing that resonated for me in your book was when you were talking about motivators. I think it can be so helpful in looking at your task list and knowing what's motivating me in, in when you're doing these hard moments of prioritization. You offer seven in the book, but one really jumped off the page to me, maybe because I'm wh where I'm at right now as an entrepreneur. <laughs> this is the one I need it. Uh, personally, this is self-therapy, but um, you called it perfecting your craft. And this is when you bring up the Japanese concept mm. of kaizen, which means mm. change for the better. 
or improvement. And you wrote, in our busy goal-oriented lives, we tend to value results above everything else. This is me. Oh my gosh. I am very results-oriented. I've been trained in that. Oh yeah. Likewise. I'm the same. (laughs) But your quote continues, Kaizen is the opposite of that. It centers on the journey. It is about a deep appreciation for the act of work itself and continually perfecting it. This idea can be a powerful motivator to keep pushing ahead. And I'd like to add to keep pushing back right? To push back on these other things that can suck that joy out of it. And remember, you offer a lot of other motivators that resonate with me, the pot of gold, the catalyst, you know, about. Um, But I think that is an important concept, especially when the world is heavy right now. There are so many things personally, globally, politically, et cetera, that feel heavy. And I think we need to give ourselves permission to insert some joy and meaning and recenter back in where our passions lie in our work. So I I really appreciated you calling out that motivator. Well, that that that's good, and I think, and and still, I think um, to make it to to pull it back to the more practical stuff on how do you do work, yeah. I find find that a lot of people that do, let's say, they do um, some running uh, outside of work, some some light sports, they often know more about their performance in their hobby sports than they know about their professional performance at work, what they do forty plus hours a week. And to me, that's really strange, right? It's, uh, it's something that we spend so much time on and we need to be aware that this is a profession and it's not just we, we're pushing emails back and forth. No, we're doing something that we think is meaningful and we need to also be careful and, and, and um, thinking about how we do it and treat that as, um, as, as a, partly as a game but also as something that we can get better at. Like the pro- like the process is something that I also link to Kaizen, like um, enjoy the process of doing the work well um, and crafting a really, like a good response on an email, spending a little bit of time on that, um, thinking about what the other person is thinking and just enjoying the process of being in communicate. Like this can can sound a little bit wavy, but like the, being being aware that you're, that that you're able to send a message uh, across the world in in just a matter of seconds, and then enjoying that part of the process as well gives me a really like a good feeling about what what we are doing. But also, uh, and again, we need to be aware that we can grow in this. That a lot of people just assume that their speed of work, their quality of work, how they feel at work is a set, like is set uh, in in stone. Um, but it can all evolve and it can all like you can all grow in you can grow in it and you can experiment with it. Um, and I think that's the key thing in the in the in every single chapter of the book, uh, whether it's about task management or email or about goal setting or about doing weekly reviews or Friday recaps or whatever. Um, I, I challenge I, I don't really challenge people to buy this book per se, but I challenge people to um find an area in work where you can launch an experiment next week to do something radically different. Uh, because if, if it doesn't work, you can always return to the way you're working right now because that's what you have. Uh, so just experiment and try something new, try something radical, work from home if you work at, in, at an office uh, or do something else crazy in your office, do something with without email for a week, um, maybe skip meetings, maybe do all your calls um, without video, um, whatever, uh, but pick something, try something out uh, and then and then see if it, if it moves you forward. 
That is the perfect summary challenge for our conversation and perfect for the Bet On Yourself listeners. That's what we're all about here. And you're absolutely right. What's the worst that happens? You go back to what you're doing right now. Exactly. You learn something and you you might find something um, that really inserts some new joy, challenges, learning opportunities. I could talk to you literally all day, Rick. There's so much to unpack from your experiences, from your community that you've built, from this um, incredibly powerful book. I want to end with just two questions. And um, the first is I'm curious of your outlook on the future. Uh, the future of work is pivoting pretty quickly. There's parts of that we've talked about some of the challenges. Is there any part of it that maybe particularly intrigues you or you see as bringing unique opportunities for the future? So I think um, I think it's really important that for, as an individual, we start also bringing the way of working to the area that's in our drivers, in our driver's seat region, uh, because uh, everything is changing so fast. And the chances are that you're pulled, um, you, you pulled with the direction of the team, right? So you're in the company or in a team, they might be thinking, okay, we should go hybrid or we should, I don't know, go, whatever, go wherever direction. And um, people share their experience about that with me. And then I often say, okay, like, do you have some kind of a document for yourself? Some kind of a, some, somewhere written down, some thoughts on how you, how you prefer to work, like given all of the transitions stuff that's going on and almost no one has that. Uh, so that would be my first, um, my, my, my first suggestion to write that down for yourself. Um, given the fact that these changes are uh, like evolving, but the general direction we we understand, right? So it's it's not being full time in an office uh, uh, um, anymore uh, for most of the job. So uh, how do you see that for yourself? What would you prefer? Um, uh, so that's one, uh, and uh, and so that so that's the that's on an individual level. On a team level, I see that communication ex like it will explode, uh, and it will like finding a time with mm -hmm. a team, finding a time with people outside of your team will be more complicated than ever because you will never know who is at the office, who is where, yeah. who is in which time zone, who is like, what kind of meeting preferences uh, do we all have? So um, I, um, uh, I I think we will see a lot of progression in that area. Um, as um, uh, as an aside, I also have an, a personal investment in that area because I'm, I'm building a calendar that actually helps you internal scheduling stuff cool. around this. So I have, a, I have a personal investment in this uh, a little bit, um, but I will, we will see more, uh, uh, more in that area, I guess. Um, and the other part is that I think we will start to see, um, we start to see more and more movement on, on uh, asynchronous work. And asynchronous more, I, I'm not sure if you, if you uh, spoke about this before in, on your podcast, but the meaning of that is that we do, I believe we do our best work when we're not connected as much to the rest of the team all the time, right? Uh, and we're mo most people that I know jump from notification to notification and meeting to meeting while we do our best work if we have a morning a week where we can just focus on deep work um, and really pushing creative work forward. And I think... Um, there is only one way to do it now and that's block off time and do it. Um, and I, I hope we will see some like shifts towards like more and more work turning into, um, mostly asynchronous discussion and thinking. Um, and that's still really vague. Um, so, so that's, that's, the, that's the vague part of the other podcast, I guess, but like, this is where I see 
also a lot of potential because it's, it, it, it also levels the playing field because what you see in, especially in a male dominated, um, and also, um, extrovert dominated meeting culture yep. is that there's always the same people that voice their opinions first, and then you take the back seat. Right. And I think right. changing the culture to, to be more of like, Hey, we can write some stuff first and then discuss it levels the playing field. And that's, that, that's what I really love about, uh, about the process as well. I could not agree more. We could talk for at least an hour just on that. I, I find that's yeah. very exciting and you're absolutely yeah. right. It brings different voices to the forefront in a way that elevates the entire group. It's um, really exciting. So important. Last question, just in interest of time, because we're already two minutes over. Um, where can our listeners connect with you? You've mentioned your newsletter, the book, social. What's the best way to connect with you for those who want these pro tips more in their life? Yeah, so the book is at gripbook.com. Um, you will also find the link to the newsletter there, which is called Work in Progress. Um, so I'm writing some some notes every week on some, something practical that you can apply. Um, and I'm mostly active on Twitter, uh, Rick Pastor. Uh, so you can find me there. Um, and that's, uh, that's where I'm most active. That's amazing. Uh, Rick, thank you so much for this conversation, all of your tips and sharing your wisdom. I very much look forward to staying connected with you. Thanks again. It was again. a pleasure. And thank you so much for having me.